Good morning. Would you take God's word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5? For those that are visiting, we are in a series looking through the writings of Peter, looking at what it's like to live in the midst of suffering and persecution. The song the choir just sang portrayed the Christian life as a battleground. You picked that up, right? I think in reality, we think the Christian life is like a resort where we go on vacation, where we attend the shows we want to do. We have big buffets that are waiting for us for supper. And until we see Jesus again, we're sitting on the beach waiting. But throughout Scripture, it's never portrayed that way. And if we understand the Christian life as a battleground, our perspectives and our choices will be very, very different than they have been. Now, this morning we're going to talk about humility. I announced last week in March we're actually going to do a three-week series. I'm saying that again. And it's dangerous to do that because after this morning you might say, I don't want to come back in March. <laughs> I don't like to hear about humility. It's too painful. But if we're going to navigate this world, and as Peter said last week, leaders are to clothe themselves in humility. But then he says, all of us are supposed to be humble. Humility is one of the critical requirements for any healthy follower of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, In being found in human form, Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So somebody once said, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for who? (laughs) His followers. This is very, 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 and if you don't get my point, I'm going to say very, again, difficult in our American culture. We are very self-absorbed. And we have a difficult time even beginning to deal with this subject on a kingdom level. Back in 1979, Christopher Lash wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism. We get the word narcissism from the Greek mythology, Narcissus. He was a hunter from Thespi, and he was known for his beauty. He became so proud And he disdained those people who loved him, didn't treat him very well. But as the story goes, one day he was out hunting in the woods where he saw his reflection in a still pool of water and fell in love with his own reflection. And not understanding it was a mere image, he was unable to leave. So as the story goes, he stared at his reflection until he died. Now, in 1979, a secular sociologist comes along and says American culture is narcissistic. Became a bestseller. He addressed the critical issue of American culture. And what fascinates me is he gave a warning. And he says, this path we travel, we will end up in our own destruction if we do not heed this warning. In fact, what fascinates me, he said, and let me give you this quote. He says, nothing is gained by giving these qualities, these narcissistic qualities, a psychologic, a psychiatric label. Now, since his time, we have 
a label in psychiatry called a narcissistic personality disorder. And he was back saying, listen, I see what's happening, but just because you call it a mental illness isn't going to resolve the issue. This is a secular social scientist saying this. Let's wind the clock forward 30 years. New book out called The Narcissistic Epidemic. Evidently, we didn't listen. Gene Twenge, again, a social, secular scientist. And she did cultural analysis on many levels. But what interested me was her analysis on the church. Let me write something that he wrote, that she wrote. Just listen to it. And she's talking about this couple that she met. Here's what she says. He went to a Southern California megachurch with his sister's family. Filled with options, the church was a giant, customized religious emporium. Coffee stands with high-end coffee, not the cheap stuff, were open throughout the expanse of church grounds. You could watch the service from inside the stadium, from outside, or at a coffee shop or bookstore on a flat-screen TV, an option key sister called Church Lights. The service itself started with a set by a talented and inspiring musician who sounded like Dave Matthews. The words to the music were projected on a screen so you could sing along if you wanted. This was a choice, too. A motivational speaker followed, telling a fantastic story with a personal life message with a reference to Paul from the Bible. After the service ended, everyone had donuts and more really good coffee while the kids played on the lawn. Keith was happy. The kids were happy. There had been a video games and live music in Sunday school building. And it was a beautiful Southern California day. In one sense, the service demanded nothing. It was really entertaining There was a huge degree of individual choice, no kneeling unless you wanted to. By adapting today's self-oriented culture, this megachurch was able to bring people back to religion. Many of those who joined would start thinking about God more. Some would study the Bible in details. Some would become better and more caring citizens. And some would volunteer to help the world. And some would ultimately become less narcissistic. But this is a bit of odd alchemy taking narcissism, narcissism and trying to turn it into altruism. This is what's at the heart of much modern religion. And then she adds this. It just comes in different packages. Now, you know what she's saying there? Well, she'd studied this mega church when she studied little churches. It was no difference. They used consumer desires to attempt to attract people to their services. Now, I'm going to put a quote up, she says, and this is what I find most disturbing. Most people are not going to attend churches that demand humility. This is, wow. What an indictment. Now, you might ask, why am I taking so much time to detail this? Here's why. Most of us do not think it's true about us. We still think the problem's out there somewhere, not in here in our hearts. And we can point to other churches and we can point to other people, but we do not and we refuse to look at our own hearts. So this morning when we look at Scripture, I want you to shut out thinking about all the other people that are narcissistic, and I want you to look at yourself in the light of what God's Spirit is saying to you.
through God's word. So we're at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes these words, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, we're called to humble ourselves. That's part of being a healthy follower of Jesus. And it defines, well, here's what we do. We take humility, we take the idea, we take the concept, and we often design it and we make a definition that suits our lifestyles. But what we want to do is define it in the light of the kingdom of God and his culture. Now, let's just back up to verse 5 because we really didn't deal with that last week. But here when he's talking, the leader says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, just not leaders, but everyone, with humility towards one another. And then he quotes Proverbs 3, 34, and James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, in this context, understand, Peter just finished telling us that we need to submit. He says in chapter 2, submit to the government. He says in chapter 2, verse 18, slaves, submit to your masters. In chapter 3, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. In chapter 5, he says, we want the young to submit to the leaders. Again, what I find interesting is what's not there. Did you notice he does not address the injustice of the circumstances? He doesn't say, people, you shouldn't own slaves. He doesn't say, men, you shouldn't treat your wives, and back then they had some plural wives, as property. They are valuable human beings. He doesn't address all the social concerns that we so often get wrapped up into. Why? Well, if we first don't deal with our hearts, no amount of legislation will ever take care of all those things we want to fix. That's the short answer. So humility, according to this passage, it's not demeaning oneself. It's not thinking poorly about self. It's a requirement for leaders but here's the first principle. He's telling us that humility is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It's trusting God for the m- most difficult and unjust circumstances. It's trusting God when we do the, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will not be afraid of evil around me. Why? Because my God is with me. Isn't that what the choir sang? We never walked alone. That God is faithful. Now, we live in a very selfish, narcissistic culture that is into social justice. And the social justice is defined by us. And there's mass confusion. And it's why everyone's getting offended. It's why there's all these microaggressions and all this terminology about what's going on. And what our definitions do is they eliminate the larger picture. The larger picture is the rest of the world, and it's all eternity. And the larger picture has to do with sin. So what happens is we try to fix it. And every time we try to fix it, things escalate. Why? Because at the center of our concern, at the center of all our social justice, at the center of all our issues is ourselves. It's narcissism, and it's not humility. 
Let me give you an example. Anybody ever hear of our national debt? It's big, isn't it? In fact, we cannot even comprehend what $20 trillion looks like. From the day Jesus was born until today, if you spent a million dollars a day, you would not hit $1 trillion. That's how big $20 trillion is. However, as long as we think we're entitled, as long as we want other people to pay the price because we think they've not paid their fair share, as long as we blame and accuse, that's what pride does, that the problem's out there. If we only get the right politicians in, if we only make the rich people pay, if we only... See, humility says we're having a spending problem. And the dilemma is across America, even people that are upset about the debt, what do they do personally? They create debt in their own lives. Because they purchase things they think they're entitled to and yet they can't afford very simple. See, humility cultivates a heart of generosity. And generosity and humility is just not about money. It's about attitude. It's about lifestyle. It's about position. When we come before God, as we do every week, we are humbled by the generosity of God, and we bow and worship in spirit and truth. And the only question we asked when we leave this place was, God, were you pleased with my heart and worship? See, it's why Peter goes after the heart. He avoids and skips the unjust circumstances which they were living in. They were not being persecuted justly. But he says, here's how you live as a people of hope. You must humble yourself. Now in verse 6, he writes again, humble yourselves therefore. Therefore points us back to what was just said under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You're not to think that you're superior. You're not to think that you have special privilege. You don't sit there and say, well, you know, that, that's for everybody else, but there's no exclusions, there's no exceptions. And that leads us to the second truth about humility here. Humility understands and sees the mighty hand of God at work in their lives. If we understand the true nature of sin and what we have done to God, humility is the only accurate response. We sang about that in the first song. Think about vision, the humble mind thing that we talked about a few weeks ago in Peter. Think about the author of Hebrews where he says that we fix our eyes on the author and finish of our faith. But understanding the mighty hand of God at work in my life. (laughs) Humility is a response. Now, if we're arrogant, we're narcissistic, we buy into the culture, understand this then. We don't understand what the mighty hand of God is doing in our lives and around us. If we don't see God at work, he is at work. He's not silent. He's active. It's because we are blind because of our selfishness. It's not someone else's fault for not communicating. God communicates through all his creation. But we become so self-absorbed in our own stories, in our own lives, we can't see outside of our own little world. At the proper time, he will exalt you. This is a possible reference that they're going to be martyred. 
as he was lifted up on a cross, they too may be lifted up and unjustly killed for their faith. Leads me to a third truth about humility. Humility is living a life of trust in God. Now notice he does not say here that you'll not worry. He says, casting all your anxieties on him. The implication is that we do have anxieties. But what he's saying is this. God defines you, not your anxieties. God defines you, not your worries. God defines you, not your circumstances or situations. Now, when you think about that, the first thing we have to ask ourselves, what are we worried about? Can I give a few suggestions based upon our culture? What are you going to say, no? (laughs) Don't you like when preachers ask questions? You know they're going to answer in a positive way. But we're just being polite. I hear people today, and one of the first things I think they're anxious about is politics. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people, and I get caught up in this too, get all worked up about the possible nominees, about who's going to be the candidate for whatever party. And so I hear people giving labels and accusations and the name call. What's interesting is, at least I'm going to speak for myself, I have never sat down and talked to any of these candidates. All I hear is what's on the media, and we know they get it right. But isn't it interesting? We believe what we want to believe. You know, Chuck Colson, who was into politics, showing my age, he served with President Nixon, and he got convicted and arrested for things today politicians do on a daily basis. That's where our countries come from. But he was in prison, became a Christian, and opened an incredible prison ministry all his life. But here's what he says. Let me read this quote. He says, the real problem that we got is that our culture has been decaying from the inside for 30 to 40 years. It's a heart issue. And politics is nothing but an expression of our culture. So whoever gets the nomination tells what we look like. The solution? Look in the mirror. That's what Peter says. You're going to live in a lot of injustice. You're going to live in the midst of persecution. Life will be a battlefield. But live in such a way that people look at you and say, tell me about the hope that you have in you. And if you're going to live that way, you have to live with humility. Because pride will say, this ain't fair. I need to fix it. Humility says there's a larger vision about what God can and will do. And so I'm going to live as a healthy follower of Jesus and watch some incredible transformational activity happen in spite of the injustice. And the only way you stop injustice is what? It's one life at a time. It's one life at a time. So that's the first thing I see people getting anxious over, politics. Second, money. If you listen to all the rhetoric, the truth is most people never have enough. Truth is, someone will always have more than you, and it's not fair. Why do we get so obsessed and anxious about money? Because it's a God, and it closes our hearts, and we lack generosity. Listen to these words in Luke 16. These words have always frightened me, and you're going to see why in a moment. But 
Just listen to the words as I read. One who is faithful in a very little in very little is also faithful in much. One who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And we say, yes, that's true. And then he says this. If then you've not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, he's talking about money there, talking about stuff. Who will entrust to you the true riches? Now, do you understand what he's saying there? If you want a church of power, if you want a body of believers that live powerfully, if you want a group of people that are going to live in incredible ways that will display the hope of Jesus Christ, if you can't handle your money, he's not going to give you that. That's what that says. If you can't handle the unrighteous wealth, why would he give you the powerful stuff? So one of the reasons... I'm so concerned about how Christians use their money is they're never going to get to a place they ought to get if they first don't look at that God of money. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And understand where your treasure is, there's your heart. Jesus said that. But Christ, I mean, Paul says this. But we have this treasure, Christ, in jars of clay. We're cracked jars. That's what that word means to show that the all-surpassing power belongs to God and not in us. Then he says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Do you get the depth of that journey and that faith? He says, man, throw anything at us. Pressure us, kick us, knock us down, bring us to the point of death. But guess what? Christ shines brightest. And if you want to live that way, you got to have your treasure right. Third category is relationships. You could talk about husband, wife, child, grandchild. It is Valentine's Day today. And some of you are disappointed, <laughs> and some of you are elated, and some of you just don't care. Amen. <laughs> you know, all of that is based upon what? What you choose to believe about this day. Now, originally, and I did some research this past week, I don't know if you know the history of Valentine's Day. There's three possible saints it was named after. They all died horrible deaths, <laughs> Okay. So it wasn't a pleasant day for them. There's one other suggestion that it was Christians trying to take a pagan holiday and Christianize it. But let's face it, all the hoopla we hear today is nothing more than consumerism run amok. It's narcissism saying, you know what? Here's what I should get out of it. If you read the Sunday paper online or in person, it doesn't matter. Dr. Tag, president of LBC last Sunday, wrote an article about seeing the value in lifelong commitments to a spouse. He put four things in there. The first was keep learning the real meaning of love and understanding that we are so culturalized and so selfish and so narcissistic, we don't get the real meaning of love a lot. Most of what we argue over is over here in culture. Number two, he says, give up your dream of a perfect marriage. I hate that might destroy some people, but guess what? 
A marriage is two sinners coming together in their imperfection. Amen? Why is it we always want perfection now, the other one then? Three, discover your spouse's unique needs and try to meet them. I like the word try. (laughs) We are not God. And ultimately, when you read that, you realize that the only way to fulfill your spouse, spouse is to get Christ in them. Christ can only take what is lost and fulfill. We can't do that as spouses. Then fourth, give praise and appreciation. Surrender the tendency to complain, criticize, and control. Now, I did overhear a conversation coming out of Dr. Kimes' class this morning, and they simply says, well, we can't complain this morning, so we've got to stuff it in. No, we don't have to stuff it in. We just let it go. Now, when you look at those four things, do you know what they're going to take? They're going to take humility. Why do they take humility? Because in marriages, we all know that we are so much better than our spouse. And we often take the high road and show mercy, right? (laughs) Do you see how easy pride slips in? See, humility is willing to admit who we are. Problem is, we often trust ourselves. But think biblically for a moment. We live under whose rule? Not trick question. We live under whose rule? God's. Very simple. We prefer congregational rule. You ever notice that? (laughs) We want to tell God what to do. So we have congregational meetings. Now, biblically, how does that work for us? Moses is up with God. They're having this chat about the Ten Commandments. People get all anxious down below. They worry. Their anxieties are rising up, and they hold a congregational meeting. And what do they do? They build a golden calf. How'd that work out for them? Israel didn't want to be ruled by God through prophets. They said, you know what? Every other nation around us has something called a king. We want a king. And so God gave him a king. How'd that work out? Korah, one of the key leaders gathers 250 key leaders with him. And they go to Moses and said, Moses, we don't like the way you're leading. So God opens up the ground. They all fall in. That was their congregational meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Next day, the people hold a congregational meeting. And what do they do? They complain and they grumble at Moses that he killed these leaders. Moses said, I had nothing to do with it. You know, God deal, you were there, you saw it. You know, how can I do this? See, trusting ourselves and refusing to submit to God shows our lack of humility. Now, so far we said humility is an act of faith. Humility understands and sees the mighty hand of God at work in our lives. Humility is living a life of trust in God. And the fourth is this. Humility is an act of submission to God. That's really what Peter's saying. If you cannot submit to God, you never will be humble. I want the band to come up. We're going to close the service with some prayers and some songs. I know you thought I got here early. You're going to get out early. Uh, We kind of split the service differently. So stay around. Last week, I talked about what's your perspective on a good leader. Remember the four I talked about? Good leader is someone who does what I want them to do. A good leader is someone who does what I would do. A good leader is someone who takes me where I would not go. And the fourth one, I said this. A good leader is someone who takes me where I could not go. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to focus on the last one because 
That's what transformational living is all about. And transformational living requires humility. Many of you know the story of Jacob. If you don't, you, you know he had an anxious moment. In fact, he couldn't sleep. He was about to meet his brother after years and years and years, and he did two things. One, he cheated his brother out of the wealth of the family. That was the birthright. And then, with the help of his mom, he cheated his brother out of the spiritual wealth. That was the blessing. And so he's up all night. He's going to be meeting Esau for the first time, and he has no idea what his brother's going to be like. He knows he got his little band, warriors. I mean, they could wipe him out. He could literally lose everything the next day. And then he sees a stranger. Doesn't know it's God, but he starts wrestling with the stranger. And he wrestles all night. Now, think about the humility of God in this. It's called the angel of the Lord. God could have pinned him right there. Doesn't matter if Jacob trained to be an MMA fighter. Doesn't matter anything. God himself could have pinned Jacob right there. But he didn't do that. He let Jacob wrestle with him all night. And he walked away with a limp. And God gave him a new name. His name was Israel. See, the real battle was not Jacob and Esau. That was a sideshow. That was the circumstances. The real battle was Jacob and God. And for every single believer, at some point in time, we will wrestle with God and we will lose. And we will walk with a limp. And that limp reminds us of two things. It reminds us of our humanity and it reminds us of our humility. Humility is where God breaks us. And in our brokenness, he brings us a new name. And he reminds us for the rest of our lives about his power. Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their 